Good morning, Harrison Bridge. Hope you guys are having a great start to your Sunday morning here. I know I have thoroughly enjoyed, one, being back with you guys. I've been going for a couple weeks. Part of that time was doing our senior mission trip in Cuba. You'll hear a little bit about that. Uh, but also have just been looking so forward to this day for so many reasons. Number one, to be back here opening the Word of God with you. Secondly, you heard Wes mention it, uh, our floor signing. Uh, it's just another step when we think about this new building that's coming. We're getting closer and closer here. In fact, it's hopefully will be a, a good thing for you. We are anticipating more parking in a couple of weeks. Don't hold me to that, but more parking is what I've been told, and so be on the lookout for that. Also, it's Promotion Sunday. I just highly encourage you, if you have a student or a child that has not plugged in with our age-graded ministries. Man, what an awesome, awesome opportunity to get plugged in here on Sunday mornings. And then as Wes mentioned, our midweek that's kicking off this Wednesday night. If you got questions, you can see Ashley Matters or Elise or even myself or any others. And we'd love to answer any questions you may have. Well, today we're asking this question as we kick off this next part of our Daniel series. What is the most terrifying dream you have ever had? What is the most terrifying vision you have ever had? I shared mine in the first service and they looked at me like I was crazy. And so I almost didn't share it last service. They, they actually were a little more encouraging. So I'm going to put myself out there, be a little vulnerable. You guys know me now after a few months. And just share the most terrifying dream that I have ever had. And this happened like three decades ago when I was in elementary school. So seriously, don't like look at me weird. All right? I was a sickly kid. Uh, I had severe asthma, severe allergies. I think my mom gave me one puff, too many on my inhaler. Maybe some Benadryl, too much of it. I don't know why I dreamed this. This dream. But here I was uh, at night, I, you know, lay down in my pound puppy sheet bed, right? Y'all know what pound puppies, maybe not. That's okay. Pound puppies were, were the move way back when. So I had pound puppies on my sheets, started going to sleep. And I dreamed that I was in my bed and my pound puppy sheets, my pound puppy, like little stuffed animal next to me. And all of a sudden in this dream, I have green snakes that start coming out of my legs, right? It's just wild stuff. What kind of elementary age kid dreams this? So here I am. I got these green snakes, little tiny snakes coming out of my legs. And you do what anybody would do in that situation. You try to swipe them off of you, right? You do not want snakes on you. It's, here's what I found. There. Every time I did that, they would turn around and start biting me. And it was like the craziest thing I've ever had happen to me in a dream. And all I know is that I sit straight up in my bed, and I'm a mama's boy, so I start yelling for mama. Right? I'm like, mama, there are snakes in my bed. And she comes running in. There's no snakes. Right? There's just soaked sheets because I've been scared out of my mind. Three decades later, I still cringe talking about that. Right? It might be a reason why I hate snakes now, but it like scarred me, and it scarred me really well for the rest of my life. I think even when I'm 80, I will still cringe at that vision there. But here's the reason why. Maybe you thought of something like a little less weird in terms of your scariest dream. But Daniel has a dream in this next chapter we're talking about. And it's far more impactful than some snakes coming out of your legs type deal. This dream, I believe, after spending some time studying it, is really the key to the rest of the book of Daniel. And here's what we find a lot of times in any sermon series or any teaching series on the book of Daniel. And I've done this even as a student pastor, right? We'll, we'll teach on Daniel from chapter 1 all the way to Daniel 6, and then we kind of forget 
the rest even happened, right? It's like, oh, you got to the lion's den. That's good. Don't worry about the rest of the stuff because it makes us uncomfortable, right? And especially Daniel chapter 7, it'll make us uncomfortable today. But here's what I've come to believe after spending some time in this passage. Daniel 7 is the key to understanding all of Daniel. It is the key to understanding the lion's den, the fiery furnace. It is the key to understanding what he does when he's 17 years old and he gets taken into exile and he refuses to eat of the food. It helps explain why this young man and then where we are today, now old man, gets to show us his faithfulness chapter after chapter here. Chronologically, Daniel chapter 7 takes place somewhere between chapter 4 and chapter 5. And this, for me, really is impactful because he receives this terrifying vision, this terrifying dream, ever before he goes into the lion's den that we talked about last week. Which, for me, is it just even underscores the importance of what we talked about last week. If you weren't here, you can find those messages online. And so, as we see and we have said, Daniel had a far more terrifying dream than maybe even we can come up with here this morning. And as we unpack this passage here today, here's what we're going to find overall. That a triumphant Savior changes everything. Even the most terrifying visions. A triumphant Savior changes everything. So we'll read parts of the chapter, we'll unpack it, and then we'll land with some ways we need to respond. So look with me. Daniel chapter 7, verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings on a, of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. If this is your first Sunday with us, welcome to Harrison Bridge, right? <laughs> You're like, what in the world did I walk into, right? That's my response to this chapter. I'm like, I don't even know what to do with this, right? Uh, and here's the thing. It's supposed to be unsettling. Just hang with us. Like, come back next week. We don't always talk about this type of stuff, but come back with us next week. But it's, this is a highly important chapter for the book of Daniel and even here for us as we think about thriving in Babylon today. So we ask some questions like, what in the world is going on here? How, how do we even begin to explain the first eight verses of Daniel 7? Well, first thing we see is that it's a tumultuous scene. It's a tumultuous scene where we see winds whipping up the sea. And ultimately what this is pointing to is that evil is abounding. And what do we mean? We see beasts start to rise up from this sea. Now, one thing to know about this is that these beasts... 
They are not reflective of the creative order here. And what does that mean? Well, you know, we would think like, oh, there's a leopard and then there's a bear and there's this and that. But notice here, these are mixtures of beasts. These are, are impure forms, if you will, of the beast. That is, they are sitting there and they do not reflect the created order of God. They're a mixture, they're impure mix there of this created order. So it's already, again, a tipping off point for us before we even talk about the beast in that things are not as they should be. And so Daniel is already seeing this terrifying vision, these beasts coming out of the sea, one right after the other, this type of animal mixed with another type of animal, and then it happens again and again and again four times. And at the end of it, we find ten horns, upon which one horn seems to reign supreme over the rest of them. And we ask, what in the world is this? Well, here's the thing we need to see. These four beasts we understand today, most conservative scholarship believes that these are representative of kingdoms, right? And in fact, this is what the angel will tell Daniel. Daniel will stop an angel in the middle of this vision and he'll say, this thing is so wild, I need some interpretation right now of this. And the angel will say, these are representative of kingdoms here. And the kingdoms we believe that these are, are being told to us are, number one is Babylon, that's the first beast. Secondly is Medo-Persia. Number three is Greece. And then the last one is Rome. And so what Daniel is seeing here, just as an aside, is that as bad as things are for him in Babylon, they are going to get much worse. In fact, with the kingdoms that are following him, if you can see this again and again in the kingdoms that follow one after the other. The one horn we believe is the Antichrist, right? I hear this next year is an election year. We hear it every election season, right? The guy I didn't vote for, he's the Antichrist, right? Sooner or later, they may get it right. But you understand this is not an answer to, oh, that's the, that, that's the Antichrist. But it gives us a picture of what this scene on the last days will be like here. And so these four beasts are named, we said, four different kingdoms here. Now, there's some things we need to understand about these kingdoms. Number one, their calling card is violence and devouring one another. In fact, you hear it there uh, in verse 5. It says, arise, devour much flesh. As one beast is on the scene, another one follows, and it devours the next one, right? So we see the calling card of these kingdoms is devouring one another and violence, hostility, evil, if you will. Also, we see that these kingdoms are oftentimes kingdoms we idolize. I mean, when you think about it, right, I'm, I'm a history geek. Uh, you guys have heard me say that before. I listened to History of Rome for pleasure. When we went to Cuba the other week, I spent like two and a half hours listening to podcasts on the Cuban Missile Crisis because that's what I do for fun, right? And so I like tend to, in my own mind, idolize some kingdoms even here and now today, maybe even my own country. But what we find with the picture of these four beasts is that God is really pulling the curtain back and showing us how he sees the kingdoms of this world. You know, in our mind, we are tempted to see the kingdoms of this world, maybe even our own nation slash kingdom, and to say there's not an end date on it. But what we see is that even these powerful four kingdoms, and they are powerful from a worldly standpoint, they all have an end date stamped on them. And what God is showing us is that they're not the glitzy and glamorous nations and kingdoms that we might like to think that they are, but rather they are violent and they are devouring one another. And therefore, it is a terrifying vi vision here for Daniel. Daniel sees that these kingdoms are growing worse and worse. He sees how bad Babylon is, but he also sees what is to come. And this makes it even more remarkable that he stays faithful. 
In just a, a couple chapters later, if we're looking at this chronologically, it's even more remarkable that he goes to the lion's den because of his faithfulness of God, knowing that things are going to get worse. Right? That's, that's remarkable in my book here. So we see this tumultuous scene with these four beasts here. Now, we, as we said earlier, we, we have to be careful not to obsess over the four beasts, not to obsess over the little horn, right? That, that's a temptation here. We go out and we study the stars in the sky and we read this study and we read that study and we become obsessed with these things are important, but they are not to be obsessed over. Why? Because the important part, the most important part of this passage we find in the next verse, verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him. And ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were open. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, the clouds of heaven, there came, like, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so what is the response from God for Daniel here in light of this terrifying scene, right? We see these four beasts. We, we hear throughout this chapter, if you go home and read it, that Daniel is deeply shaken by it. Like, he doesn't know how to deal with this. We'll see in just a minute. Like, there's, there's a lot of attention going on. So in the midst of this terrifying vision, God reminds Daniel that he is completely in control. How does he do so? He tells him about the Ancient of Days slash the Son of Man that we hear about here. And as terrifying as these four kingdoms are, as terrifying as that little horn may be, as it speaks great things, as we're told at the end of verse 8. And those aren't like great as in celebrated things. Those are terrible things that this little horn is speaking there. As powerful as those kingdoms and that little horn may be, God God is saying, I have one who is more powerful. I have one whose kingdom doesn't end. I have one who is over all and reigns above it all. And that is the Ancient of Days, the Son of Man, not known simply as Jesus. And this is what Daniel is getting a vision of. This is the most important part of Daniel 7. It's not the beast. It's not nations raging against nations. It's him being reminded that even in the midst of Babylon, God is still well in control here. Hundreds of years before Jesus walks this earth, Daniel is seeing who this Jesus is and what he will do here. The Ancient of Days, we're told, there's none like him. I mean, you, you can tell Daniel's struggling to describe to us exactly the majestic nature of who this is. His throne is fiery flames, his clothing white as wool, the hair of his head like pure wool. I mean, he is struggling to, to describe this magnificent Savior. A thousand, thousand serve him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stand before him. And the court sits in judgment, and the books are open. This is describing the scene that we see in Revelation, the day that is coming when the Ancient of Days returns. What we're also told here is that he defeats the final beast. He kills him, and he throws him in the lake of fire, and then he puts the rest of them on a leash. And this should be a, a good word for us here today. 
to know that no matter how powerful a nation may be, no matter how violent they may be, no matter how terrifying they may be, and there are those in our world today that God has all these nations on a leash and their time is fixed and there is an end date for them. And it leads us to see in 13 and 14, the son of man. Jesus even uses this title over in the gospel of Mark. In fact, Mark 14, you find Jesus pointing back to Daniel 7. And what we're told about the son of man is this, is that when he comes, he is given dominion and glory and a kingdom that will not end, that will never be defeated. That will not have another beast that rises up and devours it. But his kingdom is to be here for all time. And not only that, but all peoples, nations, and languages will serve him and surround his throne. We see this vision in Revelation. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation on that day will be worshiping Jesus for forever and ever. And it's the most beautiful scene we could ever imagine. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So in the midst of a terrifying vision, Daniel is seeing God who is in control of it all. But yet, what we find is that it's still a troubling vision for him. Verse 28, here's the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. We say, wait a second, he he just heard about Jesus. Why doesn't that fix everything? As you know as well as I do, I may know Jesus today. I hope you know Jesus today. That doesn't take away the tension of living in a broken world. Right, And we're going to walk this out a little more in just a few moments. That There's still a tension that exists for even the most faithful follower of Jesus. Why? Because the kingdoms are raging in violence and devouring one another as we long for the day that is to come there. But you'll notice here, Daniel is showing us that he pondered these things. He kept the matter in his heart. It's not just like he just sat aside and said, oh, that was wild, right? It's like my dream about snakes. I prefer not to remember it, right? I prefer not to go there a lot of times. But what we find is that he keeps it in his heart and he ponders it. This, as one scholar said, it is like Mary when she receives the news that she will give birth to Jesus in the New Testament. We're told that she keeps all of these things in her heart and she ponders them. She thinks deeply upon them. Now, this isn't just a thinking that will sideline Daniel. Rather, he will continue to be faithful, as we said, with the lions then that will come quickly on the heels of this. He will remain faithful outwardly, but deeply, inwardly, he's still wondering and thinking about all that he has seen in this chapter. And so if you're like me, you look at this chapter and you say, well, that's really informative, Corey, and that's one of the most terrifying things I've read in Scripture, and I don't even know how to make heads or tails of it. How do we even begin to respond? Like, what what is the call? What is the response here? Well, as we've said all series, the book of Daniel is really a playbook for how we live in our modern-day Babylon. And we can see even more of the plays, if you will, in Daniel 7 through three themes here. Number one is this. We see a terrifying vision. A terrifying vision. So we see Daniel receives the bad before the good here. uh, Before we get to the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man. And what we find is that we should see these kingdoms as God sees these kingdoms. We should see the nations that rule and rage and devour one another in this world, no matter how much the world may tell us these are good kingdoms and so many things to be admired, we should see these kingdoms for what they are. They are beasts that are raging. Therefore, we should be brokenhearted over them. What do we find Daniel doing a couple of chapters later? We talked about it last week. In the midst of living underneath one of these beasts, what is he doing? He's praying three times a day, as he always did. 
You see, really, as we, we see the world for as it is, our first response as followers of Jesus should be that no matter how terrifying this world is, I am faithfully going to pray for it and its redemption. That should be our first move here. You see, it should move us not to retreat. Because a lot of times, if you're like me, I see how awful this world is. I see how awful the kingdoms are. And I'm tempted to retreat into my own Christian ghetto, if you will. To say, well, I'm just going to take the drawbridge up and I'm going to keep together with my people. And I'm not going to worry about those nations that are going sideways. But really, the book of Daniel is a call to lean into those nations with faithfulness to the triumphant Savior. No matter how terrifying the vision may be. It's a call to lean in. To be brokenhearted over the state of this world. To mourn with those who mourn, as Jesus tells us in the New Testament. And here's the thing for us. As Daniel saw then, as bad as it may be right now. And I, I hear this like every week, right? Well, this nation is just getting worse. It's probably going to get worse, right? That should not come as a news flash. It's probably going to get worse. Yet notice how Daniel responds through faithful prayer and petitioning of the God who has it all well in hand. You see, this is not an excuse because we see a terrifying vision to back off of the faithfulness we're called to, but it's actually to lean in. Oftentimes, though, I want to isolate myself from this. Oftentimes, I, I just don't even want to deal with it, right? I just ignore the news or I ignore the bad things of this world. But really, it's a call to lean in, to let it shape me, to break my heart. Not in a bad way, but to break my heart so that I am praying and petitioning for those who are living underneath the terrifying vision. It reminds me a couple of weeks ago of just sitting in Cuba. You know, when I tell people we, we took seniors to Cuba, there's often that, that's a communist country. Yes, it is. And then the proverbial question, were you safe? And yes, we were safe. I was never in danger then. But here's the thing with Cuba. What I found, I, I love the people there. And the uh, same is true as I was uh, serving in another communist country over a decade ago. Uh, somebody, my supervisor at that previous country said, you'll find there's a difference between the government and the people. And saw the same play out in Cuba. And what I found over there in Cuba was this. It was a bleak place. It was a depressing place. It was a place of people with really no hope. I mean, the place where we stayed, Brett Armstrong, he was my roommate for the week. We, we would walk up uh, to the second floor, and our rooms were on the second floor. Another one had one on the third floor. And we'd walk in, and there's a TV sitting there, and there's a guy sitting there with his shirt off, watching baseball all day long, every single day. Now, don't get me wrong. Man, you put Atlanta Braves on, I'll sit down with you and watch all day long, right? That's, that's a win in my book. But here's what I found. The more, what little we interacted with him, because there's that language barrier there, I found that this man was depressed. This man, you know, had been beaten down again and again by government to the point that he was just really giving up. He's just trying to play out the string, enjoy some baseball, and not move a whole lot. Why? Because he didn't see any hope. And what it did to me is that in the middle of that week, I kind of just hit a wall, right? I was seeing the terrifying vision playing out front and center in my face. Uh, people, most of the people I talked with, they were just so beaten down. There was no hope of any change. And it was kind of the shoulder shrug, be like, why does it even matter? And it was so sad and so heartbreaking, even seeing the younger generations fall prey and victim to this terrifying vision. That they had just submitted themselves to the earthly kingdoms and said, hey, we're just here to be here. If we can survive, that's, that's good enough. And, and what I found was, man, there was a part of me that just wanted to go home. 
There's a part of me that just want to go home and just, just get out of that terrifying vision. But yet what I found as I leaned in was that there were actually opportunities there for that. Why? Because the second theme here, while we see a terrifying vision, we see a triumphant Savior. And this is the key to the whole book of Daniel. Right? How, how is Daniel able to face down the chief of the guards, the eunuchs, if you will, in Daniel 1? How are his friends able to face the fiery furnace? How is he able to walk into the lion's den with complete confidence there? It's because of a triumphant Savior that we hear in verses 9 through 14. That even in the midst of a Babylon that is raging against him and his belief system, he is still firmly rooted in the God who has everything in control. You see, God doesn't leave Daniel with just a scary vision, but he shows him how to live in light of this scary vision. He shows him one of triumph over these kingdoms and the worship that is due to him. And so what should this do? It should shift our perspective in how we respond today. But a lot of times I'm tempted, and maybe you are too, to just see the terrifying vision and say, yeah, Jesus is good, and just leave it at that, and then somehow or another not be able to make heads or tails about how I'm supposed to live in this world today. But yet, when we rightly see the triumphant Savior, we rightly know how to live amongst these beasts that may be raging. Because here's what happens. A triumphant Savior changes even the most terrifying of realities for us. To put it another way, a triumphant Savior changes even the bleakest of situations and kingdoms. Because some of us may be sitting here and saying, well, Corey, we're not really under an oppressive thumb of a kingdom or a nation here. And you're right. We have it pretty good according to history. But some of you may individually or maybe in familial ways here may be facing the pit, the bleak situation, the depression of can I even make it another day? Maybe I've lost a job. Maybe my family is crumbling. Maybe I just can't even find any hope in and of myself. And here's the thing. You won't find it in yourself. The only thing you find in this world if you don't have Jesus is terrifying vision after terrifying vision with no hope of making it out. This is what we saw in Cuba. We saw a people that, that had no hope. They, they had no answer to the hopeless situation they sat in. But the same good news for Daniel in Daniel 7 is the same good news for you here today. That that same triumphant Savior, that same ancient of days, that same Son of Man that we hear about, that Daniel is pointing to, is the Savior of this world who is calling you here to him. And no matter what you sit in here this morning, be it your family is crumbling, be it you don't even know if you'll wake up tomorrow, or be it you feel lonely and isolated, there is a God who sees you in that terrible situation, and he's pointing you to the triumphant Savior. The Jesus is that triumphant Savior. The Jesus who has lived the life that you or I cannot live, who has paid the price willingly for my sins and your sins on the cross by shedding his blood, and who has defeated death and sin at the empty tomb and invites you to know him so that you can live with that triumphant Savior for forever and ever and see a way out of the terrifying visions of this world. If that is you today, the invitation's on the table. What more are you waiting for? That is the only way out of this world. The only way that we see a way through these terrifying visions. You know, as I said, as we sat in Cuba, it was bleak, it was depressing. I shared it with someone, they, they just asked me generally out there, how was it? And, and you'll hear my answer a lot of times as I've just kind of digested that way. It was hard. It really was hard spiritually. But it was good. As we said, there were opportunities. 
We had one conversation with a man. We were sitting there about two days in. Uh, we, had, we had preached. We had already seen God move mightily on Sunday. Um, I think I even texted Melody, and I said, we, we saw 20 people come to know Jesus Sunday. And I couldn't even believe it. Never, I didn't even know how to respond to it. And, and so that's happening in the background. But then Tuesday, my portion of the team, we get, start doing door-to-door evangelism. And what the local church would do is they would prime the conversation. And uh, the man knew why we were walking to his house. But we walk up to his house of a man. He's in his 80s. And it's clear. I mean, you can just tell sometimes somebody who's been put through the ringer. You can just automatically tell before they even say a word. This man was the definition of that. In his 80s, you can tell life had, had been hard for him. You can tell he understood what a terrifying vision of a world is. He knew that reality. And we started sharing and sharing our stories and how Jesus had changed our lives. And we said, do you have a story? Like that. And he proceeds to tell us his story, but he doesn't know Jesus. But he comes to one part and he stands there, or he's sitting in the chair and he looks at me and he says, I was drowning, you know, decades ago, literally physically drowning. And I was caught in a net and there was no hope. And I believe that God saved me physically, that he loosened the net and it was a miracle that I was saved. Now, the Cuban doctor came to him later on and said, You just had loss of oxygen to the brain. You were hallucinating. And I, I looked at this man and I said, in the context that you live in, in the hopeless part of the world that you're living in now, where there's really no hope that the government will ever change, that there's really no hope in your lifetime that you'll see any difference, any hope here, and you have a clear picture of a triumphant Savior who has physically saved you, what more do you need to trust Him with your eternity? And you see, this man here who knew the terrifying vision came to know the triumphant Savior. And while his physical lot may never change in this world, I know I will see him around the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because the triumphant Savior changes everything, even the hardest of circumstances we may sit in. And it leads us to the third and final theme that we see, a transformative experience. You see, here's the thing. It would be easy to say, well, Jesus wins. We know that. And we shrug our shoulders and we kind of retreat back, as we said. Okay, if Jesus wins, it doesn't matter. I'm not going to pay anything to this world. But you find, again, Daniel leaning in the whole time. This is not a call to retreat, but it's a call to press on, even when you're living in a modern-day Babylon. It's not a shrug of the shoulders that Daniel gives, but it's it's a leaning in. And understand this, Daniel doesn't have all of his questions answered. You see, the transformative experience, it transforms him, but he still lives with tension in verse 28. His color changes. The man is overwhelmed with the vision. He doesn't walk out and say, okay, Jesus wins. Everything's good. All right, see y'all next time. But he struggles with this. And it points us to the fact that while we live for a triumphant Savior, we live in the terrifying vision of this world. And there is a tension that exists here. And we have to be okay with that tension and living out our faith there. But a lot of times, I want God to take care of that tension. I often long for tension or kingdoms to be dealt with rather than simply being faithful to Jesus in that tension. I often long for God to take care of the mess of this world before I start being faithful to him. But see, that's not the call of Daniel. That's not the call of Jesus. It's to be faithful where we are, no matter what beasts we may be serving under. We have to be okay with living with tension. Daniel is able to say this. I live in a terrible kingdom. And he saw even more terrible kingdoms coming. I live in a terrible kingdom. Worse are coming. The lion's den is coming. It's probably never going to get better for me. I'm going to die in Babylon. Yet I'm going to stay faithful to God. Come what may, my eyes are on the ancient of days. 
You see, a triumphant Savior changes everything. And it should transform us. If you're not a follower of Jesus in here, understand this. You have the terrifying vision. You don't need the Bible to tell you this world is a messed up place. You don't need to turn on the news. You can probably look in your neighborhoods and and see it. You know as well as I do, it's a terrifying place. But yet there's no hope for you. Just as the people we taught with in Cuba. And my hope is here today that you see that the only way out, the only way to find hope in this terrifying vision of a world is to trust in Jesus as your Savior. That's the invitation on the table, man. Find me afterwards. Find some of our staff members, some of our leaders in our ministries. We, we would love, love to tell you about the triumphant Savior who can change everything for you. For the Christians in here, here's the thing. It's easy to be overwhelmed with the events of today. That's not hard to do. It's easy to be overwhelmed. It's easy to complain about the events of the day. But rather, this chapter is a call for the follower of Jesus to do the opposite. This chapter is a call to trust in the midst of terrible circumstances, to trust in the triumphant Savior. This chapter is a call to see that Christ reigns no matter the kingdom. And we should live that out. A triumphant Savior changes everything, no matter the kingdom, no matter the circumstances. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you're a God who sees us in a broken world, one that is violent, one that is devouring one another, one that so many days, even if we know you, we're tempted to say, God, are you even there? And yet you remind us, so clearly in this chapter that no matter what earthly throne may be here, your heavenly throne is above it all, that you reign above it all. And so God, remind us of that today. God, I pray for those that do not know you, that they would see the terrifying vision. They would be shaken by it, but they would see the call and the invitation to come to know this triumphant Savior, Jesus. God, I pray for us who do know you, that we would see the call in this chapter to be faithful no matter the government, no matter the kingdom, no matter the circumstance, be it nationally or even individually, that you, Jesus, are with us through it all and that we would look to you each and every day. And we ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.